The global order is changing. Neoliberalism is under unprecedented strain. There's a general sense that the rules by which our societies have been structured in the last several decades have broken down, and that our leaders and our institutions have failed us. If neoliberalism was the economic base to the globalization superstructure, what will the consequences of this shift be on the lives of ordinary people? Join Globalization Cafe as we offer uncompromising political and economic analysis on the global issues that affect our everyday lives, because the political conversation matters. Welcome back to Globalization Cafe. Today's episode is part two of my discussion with Ambassador Telmiz Ahmed, former Indian ambassador to the Gulf. Last week, if you missed it, Ambassador Ahmed outlined the broad institutional structures of power in the region and also gave us quite a bit of insight on how he understands the nature of political Islam in the region. Today, we move on to more contemporary issues. I began this discussion by asking Ambassador Ahmed to talk about the legacy of colonialism in the Middle East. Uh, There is no, you see, when you're looking at a region that stretches geographically from Morocco up to Yemen and encompasses 400 million people and about 30 countries, you cannot, and with very complex history and complex culture, local cultures, you cannot have a simplistic one-line explanation. I would say that the core of this is Western imperialism. Western imperialism established an authoritarian system from the middle of the 19th century in the in most of West Asia. Uh, so you had in Egypt the incursion, the British incursions in, in Egypt is the big start of this process and the French in certain other parts. But going back to the the end of the First World War, you have the division of West Asia in the the mandate system. And again, in all of these countries that emerged uh, after the First World War, you you had an authoritarian order that largely had uh, had local uh, rulers, but they were puppets of Western masters. So this pattern that was set up was that I will uh, that the imperialist order would look after the interests of the ruler, and in turn the ruler would sustain the the strategic and economic and political interests of the ruler would continue. Would uh, I mean of the um, I mean of the colonial power? This pattern was put in place after the First World War. In the case of the Gulf, you had the British control over the Gulf for about 200 and odd years. And therefore, and again, you find the same pattern of dependence. You create a hegemony on the basis of your military prowess and your economic interest, and you create a set of leaderships that are entirely beholden to you for their security. And in turn, they sustain your interest. Now, after the Second World War, as colonialism retreated, the political order on terms of the pattern that I have sketched out did not end. It did not end at all. Overwhelmingly in West Asia and North Africa, you found rulers 
who were insecure and therefore depended on the West for their security and in turn fulfilled the strategic interest of Western powers, initially the United Kingdom and later the United States. You had then a series of revolutions. These revolutions promised an independent country and they promised an independent political posture separate from Western control over them, starting with Nasser and then going out to, to Qasem and then to Salal in Yemen and to Hafed al-Assad in Syria. You had all of these and Gaddafi in Libya, all of them promised initially to be independent of the West and to run their countries on the basis of nationalism, socialism and secularism. But all of them came subject to reality checks. Most of the evolution took place in the Cold War. In the Cold War, initially they would take postures that were pro-Soviet Union. Therefore, Nasser was very close to the Soviet Union and got military sources uh, from the Soviet Union. But this Republican order started cracking. It cracked very quickly and later on merely became coercive and tyrannical. The, the first crack came with the 67 war. With the 67 war, the bravado and the shallowness and the hollowness of these, uh, of these leaders was exposed. And the power, the balance of power in West Asia shifted from the republics to the, uh, to the traditional monarchies. And it is at this time that Saudi Arabia became the most influential Arab country. Obviously, it was pro-West. And this is the period, uh, Philip, where you will recall that Islam, quote-unquote, was seen as a natural ally of the West against godless communism. But the pattern that I mentioned earlier, all of these were insecure states because all of them were authoritarian. They were sustained in power by Western interests. So when the West provided you security, it was not to the country, it was to the ruling family. It was to the ruling dynasty. And in return, they supported your strategic interests even in matters where their own interests did not warrant it. And I will clarify in a minute. Uh, so then you see, even in the republics, you find step by step, the republics start turning pro-West. In the, in the case of Egypt, Sadat began this process. He moved away from the Soviet Union, turned to the West, went in for the 73 war and then the Camp David agreement. In the case of Saddam Hussein, we also know today that during the Iran-Iraq war, he got a lot of support from the United States. In the case of Gaddafi, we know that in the last seven years of his rule, he had become completely pro-West. So this is the pattern that you had a very warm and cozy relationship with Western powers. Uh, I mean, traditional monarchies, all of them were sustained by the West in their position. The exception to this is the Shah of Iran. Here you had a genuine popular upsurge. It took the world by surprise. The United States was not expecting it. And therefore, Iran slipped out of their hand as China had done in 1948. But after that, you find that with the leadership of the Gulf monarchies and the oil well that they enjoy, 
you find largely that they control the flow of Arab politics. And therefore, you find that now you find that the, say, uh, the, uh, you know, I mean, the global jihad, it suited these uh, three countries, United States, Saudi Arabia and Pakistan to go in for a global jihad. For the United States, it was one more front in the Cold War. For Saudi Arabia, it was the opportunity to burnish its, its Islamic uh, credentials. In the case of Pakistan, it was to legitimize the dictatorship of Ziaul Haq. Whatever the reasons, you found a very strong relationship, a coordination and a cooperation between the, the, the authoritarian regime and the United States. This continued in the 1990 war, where Saddam Hussein had to be defeated. Once again, you found the regime supporting the Americans. But after that, in 2003, the Arab regimes were entirely opposed to the attack upon Iraq, not because they liked Saddam Hussein, but because they thought that the strategic balance of power would change to their, to their disadvantage and the Iranians would win, which is what happened. But they went along with the war because of their relationship with the Americans. So to summarize, I would say that there is a pattern over the last 100 years of Western control over the political order, political and economic order. And in turn, the West provides security to the ruling families. And in turn, you find that they give full strategic support. The one thing the West is not willing to accept is a democratic system. They do not want to ever see a democratic order. I, from Pakistan up to Morocco, the democratic order is anathema to American interest, and they will never support it. I want to remind you that after 9-11, there was a very strong pressure upon Saudi Arabia to reform, quote-unquote reform, to open up the political system and to open up the economic cultural system to thoroughly reform the religious and education system. It lasted till, uh, till about three years or four years. The moment the Americans realized that they were going to lose the war in Iraq, they completely gave up all plans for, uh, for reform and, and immediately built up very solid relations with the authoritarian regimes of the Gulf, and that pattern continues to this day. There is no mention whatsoever about any reform or any opening up of the system. Please do remember this, that if this region is authoritarian, the Americans have had a very strong role in that. The last thing the, any American president would want to have is an open and democratic system. He wants control over this regime, and this control is sustained uh, through the various authoritarian monarchies and other leaders who creep up from yeah, time to time. Yeah, that's uh, really helpful. So the prioritizing stability over democracy is very clear. We've got plenty of examples across the region. Uh, you mentioned after the after the uh, uh, the failure to win Iraq, and also, I mean, the the uh, hostility towards um, the Muslim Brotherhood, and also Hamas's election in Palestine. Lots of examples where rhetoric has been there for democratization, but in practice, uh, if the people choose the wrong, uh, uh, make the wrong democratic choice in the view of the Amer of not just the Americans, but I suppose the 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 um the internet the, the western consensus if you like then you know 
measures will be taken to restore stability. Absolutely. You remember the case of Algeria. You had free and fair elections in Algeria and Islamic Party won. You saw the French intervention at that time with full American support. 100,000 Algerians died and the authoritarian system was restored. So it's not just the Americans. Our French brothers are exactly the same. So All this, imperialists are a, exactly a, the same. A, a product of seeking to maintain stability for the oil trade? Actually, the Western system is now has been overtaken by facts on the ground. Long ago, they wanted their principal motivation for the Americans was security for Israel. As you know, Israel doesn't need uh, anybody's help to maintain its own security. It is fully capable of looking after itself. Indeed, I would argue to you the exact opposite, that Israel is the source of insecurity in the region. Therefore, the first point with regard to security of Israel is now no longer valid. The second point was with regard to the flow of oil. This made sense up to the 1970s. And to some, after the 1970s, no, no oil producer has dared to use the oil flow as a weapon. He has a vested interest in, this, in the sale of oil and has a commercial interest. With the shale oil revolution, you find that there is absolutely no way that anyone can, can ever hold any Western economy hostage on the basis of oil supplies. So that has gone down the drain. The third motivation for Western interest in West Asia was to ensure in the Cold War that the Soviet Union did not spread its power in the region, its influence in the region. After the Cold War, the, uh, this argument uh, had no resonance whatsoever. So you had a new enemy who, was, who had emerged in West Asia, and this was radical Islam. You had a lot of uh, ballast provided to you uh, by, by Bernard Lewis and then by Samuel Huntington, who argued to you that this is the most potent and the most robust enemy that you have before you. And this is what the Americans purchased. The Americans bought this argument. And it was robustly articulated by the neocon movement, uh, which supported Israel more strongly than it supported the United States. But it was influential, particularly after 9-11. So you have this scenario. Uh, so you have this now in the name of radical Islam. You have now this enemy. Now, one could easily argue the exact opposite that the radical Islam movement, the movement of radical Islam, has actually benefited from the authoritarian order and Western intervention in West Asian politics. Rather than being the enemy, it is actually the beneficiary of, of traditional policies of the West in this region. I would argue to you that if you had a transparent and accountable system and a system where there was where there was a certain uh, ability to question your leadership and to replace your leadership when they did not behave themselves, and you had a role in decision-making in your country, you would not have the robust uh, presence of radical Islam because radical Islam is a product of frustration. 
there are a variety of frustrations that happen among young people. But I would say to you that the fact that they have no role, that they, they, they are at the heart of what Jarjis has called the organic crisis in West Asia. At the heart of West Asia, you have a political order that is non-transparent, non-accountable, extremely coercive, extremely tyrannical, extremely corrupt, and only interested in looking out and very, very licentious. This is the order that you're so various people have various motivations for becoming jihadis. I would say to you that at least some of the people from the Gulf countries become jihadis because of very severe frustration at home. I would remind you that the Islamic State at Raqqa in Syria had 7,000 Saudis participating in it and a motley group of Emiratis and various others. These were not state-sponsored at this time. The Afghan jihad was state-sponsored, but this jihad is not state-sponsored. Still, a few thousand people landed up there, leaving the comfort of their home and the luxury of their surroundings. They landed up at Raqqa in order to fight their own people and their own governments. The various reasons, other reasons, motivated other people from Pakistan and from the United Kingdom. I mean, uh, these Pakistani origin people in the United Kingdom and certain North African origin people in Western Europe. Those are different motivations. But in West Asia, the motivation has been political frustration. I would therefore conclude here that it is Western policies that have A, ensured the continued authoritarian order and the sustaining of a tyrannical and coercive system and B, that resulting from this, you have a large number of young people who are motivated towards jihad in the name of Islam to take up arms against these wretched regimes, which who they see as corrupt, as pro-West, extremely licentious, and very far away Let me from ask you the about, fundamentals uh, your of Your experience in, uh, in Saudi Arabia and in the Gulf War generally, this, there is... Pretty much the, the the mainstream coverage of uh, of uh, um, the the Gulf uh, uh, and societies in the Gulf region revolve around basically oil and uh, human rights. Uh, it's pretty two dimensional. Um, but you were there for a, a very long time um, uh, and, and across the entire region in different places with a, a lot of experience. Can you give us a bit more of a, a fleshed out understanding of the? contemporary political and cultural environment in the Gulf, if, if it's possible to generalize like that? See, the Gulf is not monolithic. The six countries of the GCC are quite different from each other. Uh, Saudi Arabia is the one country that espouses Wahhabiya. So it is a very, very coercive order founded on religious belief. The kingdom that I used to know uh, till 2011, no longer exists. After the death of uh, uh, King Abdullah and the accession of, of King Salman, you have today a scenario within the royal family where all power, political, military, economic and energy power is vested in the hands of one young prince, a 31-year-old prince uh, called Mohammed bin Salman. This is absolutely extraordinary and is without precedent in the Saudi royal family, royal family history, particularly in the last 70 years after the death of King Abdulaziz. 
So you have a certain degree of turmoil. This young prince, according to me, is concerned primarily about expanding his power base and uh, I would call him very crudely power hungry. But he is projecting himself as the harbinger of uh, reform, of change. He is seeking out to build a constituency of support from, young, uh, from amongst young people. Recent statistics have shown that 60% of Saudis are below 30 years old. And it is these people, not particularly well informed about foreign affairs, who are desperate for change in their life. And they are a source of support for him. Some of us a little more skeptical, a little more cynical, and a little more jaded uh, do not buy any of this. None of us believes that the Saudi order is going to change. Even uh, Prince Mohammed bin Salman has never, never, never mentioned the possibility of political reform. He talks about economic reform and talks about cultural reform. He does not mention any, uh, any I mean, he does not mention ever the possibility of political reform. Absent political reform, all the other changes that are being suggested I don't think have any resonance whatsoever and they are going to wither away in the face of tyranny and in the face of coercion. With regard to the other countries of the GCC, you have a very strange scenario. You have Bahrain, which is the, which is the smallest country with just a few thousand people, a uh, few hundred thousand, where you have a Shia majority. And therefore, and it has no oil. Therefore, Bahrain is crucial. Bahraini royal family is crucially dependent for its security on Saudi Arabia as well as for its economic sustenance. This used to be a very accommodative system till recently, but once the cry for reform started, it has become extremely coercive, and there are reports of rampant human rights abuses, and the sectarian divide has now got deeply institutionalized in the country. In the case of Qatar, you have a maverick. You have again a very, very tiny country and you have, but their rulers for some time have affiliated themselves with the Muslim Brotherhood. Therefore, contrary to the trend in Saudi Arabia and in the UAE, here is one GCC country that is actually supportive of the Muslim Brotherhood. And therefore, its rulers and the royal family are totally unacceptable to Saudi Arabia. And it is in this background that you have the confrontation that is ongoing, the blockade and the political economic sanctions that Qatar is experiencing today. You have two other countries. You have the UAE. The Emirati in his own country is about 12%. The Indians are 60%. But Abu Dhabi Emirate has the fifth largest oil reserves in the world. And at present production, its oil will continue for more than 100 years. It has barely touched the surface of its potential. UAE has a certain vision of itself. I have sometimes felt that absent the ongoing conflicts, its vision was like Venice. Venice of the Renaissance period was a very, it was a trading center. It was a cultural center. It was a place where people of all communities could gather. You had Armenians and you had Jews and you had Turks 
and you had all kinds of other characters who gathered together for business. And that is what Venice was all about. So long as you behaved yourself publicly, you could gather there and do business. This is what UAE is all about. It wants to be a global, a regional, and indeed over time, a global center for international business. But that scenario has changed. With the ongoing conflicts, their leaders have become a little more ambitious. And sadly, our American brothers have encouraged this completely mindless approach of referring to the UAE as little Sparta. Now, you know, Sparta had one difference from the UAE. Sparta had Spartans. Spartans fought for Sparta. In the case of the UAE, when you are 12% of your whole country, how the hell are you going to fight? Who is going to fight on your behalf? I mean, they are today using mercenaries all over the place. Now, that's not the attribute that Sparta had. And I think it is an American folly to feed into the ego of some of these leaders and to suggest that they have a role and an image that is absolutely unrealistic. You have two other countries in the GCC who, which are now in a state of deep confusion. You have Oman. Oman is a very accommodative, very pluralistic and very, uh, very moderate country. Its rules do not permit the, uh, any manifestation of religion in the public space. They do not allow political Islam or any other politics relating to religion to be manifested. That has been their considered view up to now. But that is changing. Today you have a situation where the ruler is non-functional and is uh, of a certain age. And uh, you have today a limbo. The country is in limbo. They do not know what to do with themselves. They have no oil wealth. They are crucially dependent on foreign investment, but they do not have the uh, they do not have the attractiveness that would encourage people to come. They are very very good people, very nice people. They are the ones anxious to promote themselves for tourist purpose, tourism purposes. The other country tucked away in the corner of the Gulf is Kuwait. Kuwait has an aging leadership. It has gone the furthest that a GCC country can go in terms of participatory politics. But having reached a certain point, they could not pluck up the courage to go beyond that. So you have free elections. You have political parties. You have people who come into uh, the parliament, the National Assembly. But the moment they start questioning the political leadership about its conduct, particularly about the corruption and non-transparency, the, non the National Assembly used to be prorogued or dissolved and fresh elections would take place. So in this way, at least five times the National Assembly has been, uh, has been dissolved. You are today in Kuwait at the edge of change. But the political capacity for change is simply not manifested. But in the meantime, what you have in Kuwait is a deep split within the royal family, which is very dangerous for the country's future. You also have the rise of various different factions. You have a resurgent Muslim Brotherhood on the one hand, and you have members of the assembly who are, uh, who are promoting Shia interests. So you have a very divided political order, but it has not yet reached the stage 
where you would worry about the country's future. But what will happen after their aging ruler passes away is anybody's guess. Will the successor be able to hold the country together in Kuwait and in Oman? That remains to be seen. I have argued and I continue to believe that the entire region is at the edge of change. And this change could be top down. If you had an enlightened and statesman-like leadership, you could have change from above. Or absent a change from above, you could have change from below, where people agitate on the streets. Maybe the second is not likely in the near future. The first would be something we would welcome, but the statesmanship and the vision is simply not there in any of the top leaders. I want to uh, end this particular point by pointing out that three countries of the GCC have a minority national population and have a majority Indian population. So in the case of UAE, Indians are 60% of the country and they are also overwhelmingly the majority in Qatar and in Bahrain. We are Indians totally in the GCC are 8 million and we are the number one expatriate oh, community a, I, in I, the I GCC. I didn't know that. That's quite uh, fascinating. Let, let me just ask you then, you, you said that the... Uh, that the region is on the, the point of change. I mean, it's. I, I have an inclination that you're, you're right about that, but um, given everything we've just talked about throughout this whole conversation about how the West prefers stability, how regimes are uh, uh, almost uniformly uh, you know, paranoid about their own stability, and of course these are extremely well-armed regimes as well, uh, as demonstrated by what's going on in Yemen and in Syria. Um, oh, can it, can change be smooth or is... I do not believe, Philip, I said that the region is ripe for change. I did not say that change is going to happen. With deep sadness, I must say that I do not see the prospect of change over the next five years. I do not believe that there is the firstly most of these countries except for oman and bahrain have huge oil resources they are under pressure they are under economic pressure but with oil now having reached 70 dollars and likely to remain between 65 and 70 enough resources are available to the country to be able to ensure that they are able to manage their welfare system as you know, the welfare system, how does uh, tyranny work? Tyranny works through co-option and coercion. It attempts co-option first. Co-option is done on the basis of doles, on the basis of bonuses, on the basis of loans that are not called for, and various ways in which money is pumped into the uh, potentially disgruntled community. Only those sections of the population that refuse to respond positively to these doles, or you could call that bribery, they are the ones against whom you have to use coercion. And that is what they do. These are not in instinctively coercive regimes because the resources are such that they are fully able to purchase support from their recalcitrant communities. Also do recall the fact that large sections of their community do not have any knowledge of politics, do not have any experience of politics, have never participated in anything political, even at the classroom level, 
Even in the chambers of commerce, they are not able to have elections. They don't have elections in the provincial assembly. Therefore, the prospect of responsibility that comes with governance is simply absent. You know, you have an inert community that does not have the ability to be to be able to be capable of uh, political decision making and political participation as of now. Therefore. Uh, so long as you have the oil wealth with you, you are all right. What you are seeing in Saudi Arabia is a very, very disruptive transition from one generation to the next. Possibly after a few years, this or this what seems like disruption today might get accommodated, might become part of a political order and might be accepted by large numbers of young people. By, with the help of palliatives like women being allowed to drive or some control over the over the religious police and uh, some more effective control over the uh, over the religious uh, you know over the cleric you could have a new normal emerging in the kingdom i don't know i'm not comfortable about it but that's the way it could happen many people ask me about prospects for change in saudi arabia and i say that there is no tradition in the kingdom for organized dissent. There is no organized dissent, no capacity for organized dissent in any power center. You do not have that with the security police, with the armed forces, within the royal family. As you know, he arrested uh, seven or eight top royal family members. Nothing happened because the royal family is incapable of mounting a counteroffensive. You know, so there is, in this reality, this objective reality, where there is no capacity in a nation for organized dissent. Organized dissent means coming out on the streets and taking a bullet if it is fired at you. That kind of political evolution simply does not exist either in Saudi Arabia or in any of the other Gulf countries. Therefore, how do you have change? Change from below has to come as a result of political activism. Where you do not have political activism of any kind, where you have a state that watches your movement and watches your conduct and hears everything you say and do, how are you ever going to mobilize yourself for political activism? It's simply not going to happen. Therefore, therefore I am not, I believe objectively that the region is ripe for change. But I do not, I'm not able to put a time frame. Also, as you know, successive American leaders have promised total support to the authoritarian system. The last of them being a, a certain gentleman called Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump is a very strong supporter of this system and he's not going, therefore he's only the last. All of them have supported the political status quo. From a different angle, I, I, I get that you mean that it's ripe for change and, and I certainly understand how the regime uh, uh, seeks to prevent this. But I mean, if we look at historical examples where, um, well, I don't know if you want to use the word totalitarian, but, but examples that uh, uh, where regimes with extreme control over populations have changed, if you look at the collapse of the Soviet Union, for instance, uh, and plenty of others, I mean, uh, you don't necessarily have to have a popular movement if the internal contradictions are sufficient enough to bring down the system. I mean, you, you may not got to, you may not achieve a pleasant outcome, 
But if the if the internal contradictions of the regime are severe enough, then the regime could collapse. And and in the Saudi example, where you mention, um, what, what, what I mean, the the term that we use in the literature is is a rentierism that it's a state that is essentially separate from society because it is able to sell oil revenue to the international markets, which pays for itself and it is used. Uh, weapons it purchases and so on to maintain the system of control. If um, I mean, you seem to suggest that the oil, or the oil issue is is not a problem. But given the fact that uh, there is a diversification in in uh, oil sources around the world with shale and so on, um, and you've also got greater expenditure from the Saudi budget with the wars in Yemen, the supporting friendly regimes after the Arab Spring. There is a potential contradiction that if the oil price doesn't stay high enough, then then it will not be able to fund the security state and the or the state of paranoia or whatever you want to call it the 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 regime the, the Saudi regime uh, as it's uh, uh, in its current form, and therefore the contradiction between what the state needs to do or the regime needs to do to to uh, stay in power versus its resources will may be sufficient to, 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 to at least damage it. I mean, the, does, is, that not a, is that not a possibility? Uh, firstly, the subject of how governments change from authoritarian systems to more participatory systems is something that you and I should continue to study and investigate. When I look back to the situation in 1989, yes, there was, you see, I have seen the capacity of, of crowds, of the popular movement, a popular large numbers of people coming out onto the streets, effecting regime change. You had this in Tunisia and you had this in Egypt. And to a limited extent, you had this in Yemen as well. So capacity to change is there, particularly if the armed forces decide that they will not kill large numbers of people, but would rather maintain the deep state and have a change of face. They don't change the system. They change the face. And they, they feel that it is in their interest to let Hosni Mubarak go, to let Zainal Abedin bin Ali go but maintain the core apparatus of the state. Now, this is what we saw in the case of the Arab Spring, were large numbers of people coming out with deep-seated grievances, largely economic, but then translating into demand for transparency and accountability and rampant and criticism of corruption. Now, while you can effect regime change, governance still requires three attributes, three aspects. Number one, uh, a political movement that has a leadership, it has a membership, and it has an ideology. Unless you have an alternative political system that can take power and provide governance, you will find that regime change will simply remain that you will find an alternative ruler who will be rapidly found in its place. This is what has happened in the case of Egypt. Now, this is what we also saw in the case of Iran. 
that yes, there is widespread disgruntlement and dissatisfaction, but we must recall that coercive power is available with the state. And if you have, have a system that is able to very quickly use a minimum of coercion, but maximum of persuasion, you may find that the agitations could fizzle out. Now, this is the key. The key is every movement on the street must have organization, must be political. Now, in the case of the Gulf countries, you can, by a stretch of imagination, consider the possibility of large numbers of people coming out onto the street. I don't believe that's going to happen. But assuming it does, what next? Firstly, they will face the coercive power of the state. What the state does is it doesn't bring allow people to come onto the street. It ensures that their disgruntlement is already preempted. They monitor your perform your behavior and your remarks, etc. On the one hand, and on the other hand, so they arrest you preemptively. On the one hand, and on the other hand, if you ever find they find that there somebody is dissatisfied, they would very quickly take remedial action, usually of a financial character. Therefore, dissent without politics, without leadership and without a mass movement that is ideologically oriented, you are not going to get real governance. That is the first point. And the ability of state order because of the coercive capacity available with it is will ensure that either these, this dissent is prevented or it is allowed to succeed uh, or it is co-opted. It is either prevented or it is co-opted. Very rarely would they want to use coercion. That is, they, they use coercion in Saudi Arabia against the Shia. The Shia is the one community that is willing to come out onto the streets. They are willing to take bullets. But they remain marginalized in the, in the little area that they are active in. They do not have any links with the rest of the country. That is another aspect of an authoritarian system that you prevent dissent from engaging with other sources of dissent and other movements of dissent. For example, in the kingdom, there is no national capacity, no capacity for organized action across the country. The only institutions that are across the country are the security forces. Other than that, there is no entity that can say in such a large country like Saudi Arabia that they have any national status or national connectivity. So I think that that is another aspect that we have to look at. And once you look at, say, what happened in uh, the case of uh, the Soviet Union, as the Soviet Union collapsed, you had the emergence, you had that wretched coup, and you had the emergence of Yeltsin. Now here you will recall that Yeltsin was very actively supported by the West. You know, But after his time and the mess he made of the economy and of the country, you have the authoritarian rule of Putin. So you have had, you've come back a full circle uh, in the case of Russia. Similarly, I feel, except for Tunisia, which is now going through, because it's so small, they have been able to put in place a democratic system. But if you read the literature relating to Tunisia, you cannot be optimistic. You have a large number of people who are deeply dissatisfied with the economic performance of their regime. And five or six years after uh, their change, they today the most popular 
group, more popular organization in the country are the armed forces. You cannot rule out the fact that you might have a military coup d'etat in Tunisia at some stage fairly quickly. So, you know, and people are already saying that democratic systems uh, do not take root very easily. The people's aspirations are so uh, so so widespread and so so insistent that they do not simply have the patience to accommodate a new uh, a new political order. Let us study this aspect a little more and see where it goes. We have only anecdotal evidence available with us. I think this is a subject that we will constantly be revisiting. How political transformations change. Uh, I mean, how political transformations take place. How does an authoritarian system translate into an, uh, a system that is more accommodative and more pluralistic? What are the forces that are at play? And uh, you are the academic. You may like to study these matters. But you have, I'm still very, very open-minded in this regard. I'm I'm struggling to understand. I do not know. I do not have all the answers. But I do know that in the in West Asia, in the Arab world, the capacity for change is simply not there as of now. And the coercive power, now you have sometimes, say in the case of General Sisi, General Sisi was willing to use bullets. He killed 1,500 people from the Muslim Brotherhood fairly quickly, which the armed forces were not willing to do when there was pressure upon Hosni Mubarak and Zainal Abedin as well. But if you have a regime like you have the Bashar Assad regime, a regime that signals that it is willing to use serious coercive force. How long will a peaceful movement, a disgruntled community on the street, how long will it survive? That's another question that <laughs> well, I, I suppose, to you, sir. I don't, I don't have an answer for that, but I suppose, uh, to put it crudely, you're saying if there isn't transition, if there isn't serious move, to uh, to uh, 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 a more um, democratic system, or at least uh, a system that involves the public more seriously, then effectively, you know, you 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 may get change, but it's uh, it's same crap, different day. You get go go from one authoritarian system to another. That's yeah, that's that's a again another reason why we can be disappointed liberals. Uh, Yes, I want to mention two other points to you, Philip. One is with regard to oil prices. You know that sometime in the middle of the next decade, shale oil is going to run out and you're going to be back to conventional oil. And again, the price will start creeping up and may reach $80 or thereabout. So that is one point to be noted, that shale oil is not with us forever. And no other country besides the United States has the conditions to have uh, the exploitation of uh, shale oil on commercial basis. That's the first point. The second point is the example of China. You know, a lot of this, uh, Mohammed bin Salman and others are learning from China. China, they see as a system that is authoritarian, that is ideological, that is coercive, uh, but it is still very, very popular. And it is their assessment is that it is popular because it has given people a stake in the economy. They are participants in the narrative, in the success narrative, the economic success narrative. 
And if you are successful economically, you don't any longer have to provide political freedom to your people. Therefore, whenever I talk about political freedom, the necessity of political freedom, people give me the example of China as the one that contradicts my position. That if China can do it, and if you were Mohammed bin Salman, or you were Mohammed bin Zayed, or any other, or, or even General Sisi, though I think General Sisi has no capacity for economic miracles, the others do. If they are able to give, Mohammed bin Salman is very deeply inspired by Putin as well as by the Chinese president. And you may find that he may learn from both of them the virtues of an authoritarian system if you are able to give people a sense of national pride, which the both of these leaders have given, and against a common enemy. Yes, everyone is against us, and we are trying to be a great people, but everyone is against us. And thirdly, great economic achievement in which everybody oh, yeah, can uh, participate. That's actually very stark when you put it in those terms, yeah. Let me just ask you, finally, if... Um, if the if you have any if the, if there's anything that we've missed that you think is that is important that should be included in the conversation and if and if not what and you were to think about the next few years you've mentioned a few things what where would you see uh, the region in in, uh, in the next ten to twenty years maybe how you hope it would turn out versus um, maybe how you think it will turn out. You know, Philip, I deny that I'm a prophet. And whenever I make projections about the future, I restrict myself to the next five years. Because I believe that the next five years decide the five years after that. So unless I know what's going to happen in the next five years, I, I never, never, never make a prediction about 15 years or 20 years. Because then we are all dead. So I don't even get into that. Next five years. Next five years... I see the my unless there is a serious diplomatic intervention, which I see no evidence of as present. If the unless there is a diplomatic intervention to bring Saudi Arabia and Iran engaged with each other, I very seriously fear that if the present situation is allowed to drift. And the, and the Trump administration continues with its disruptive and mindless policies, you could face the prospect of conflict between these two Islamic countries. They are already talking about conflict. They're talking about regime change in Iran. They are, talk, they are sending weapons into various disgruntled minorities, mobilizing all kinds of people already. Trump is going to withdraw from the nuclear agreement. He is going to up the ante by talking about ballistic missiles and condemning the Iranians on a, on in regard to ballistic missiles. He is also likely to encourage confrontation against Iran in Syria and possibly Lebanon, in which Israel might be a part party. So you have all the as all the provocations for a very serious region-wide conflict. And this is what worries me more than anything else. That unless I spoke yesterday to a group of Saudi officers, military officers, have come. they are in India today, uh, last few days. They are here for three or four days. 
There are about 25 of them of the rank of major general, brigadier, colonel, etc. They are on, you know, just a kind of orientation tour as part of our defense cooperation. And I spoke to them. I told them gratuitously that please, please do not put your eggs in the American basket and certainly not in the Israeli basket. They do not have your interests in their heart. They are going to let you down badly. They are using you for their own interest. You belong in West Asia. You belong in the Gulf. It is your duty to engage with the Iranians and to address the issues that divide you. And if someone else is not available, I said there must be an interlocutor who can facilitate this dialogue. So I have said that I have been saying for the last three or four years that India should be that interlocutor, that role player, that diplomatic role player that can somehow get these two wretched countries talking to each other. Otherwise, absolutely, now you have seen the situation in Syria that with no involvement, with, uh, with nobody moving a peace process till very recently, till in fact uh, last few days, you find that half a million people are dead and every city in Syria is destroyed. In the case of Yemen, you have a scenario where 10,000 people are dead and 20, and large numbers of people, several million people are deemed to be seriously vulnerable. You have a situation in Iraq where they have just somehow won this conflict against the Islamic State. But every other day you're going to have a bombing in that country. And the sectarian divide and the wounds fostered by sectarianism have not yet been addressed. We need to strengthen the hands of, uh, uh, of Haider al-Abadi. But you have a lot of spoilers in the game. And then you have this direct confrontation which has been shaped in sectarian terms. You have a very impulsive and disruptive ruler in Saudi Arabia who has no strategic vision, no knowledge of history and politics, and he is at the helm of affairs. He believes in quick solutions just like Donald Trump. So you have an extraordinary situation where you have a disruptive force uh, on a global scale in Donald Trump, and you have a disruptive force at the regional scale in the shape of Mohammed bin Salman, and these are the two great allies in West Asia working with the Israelis. I mean, what more do you want? It's a potent, lethal concoction for conflict and war. This is what worries me more than anything else. And I fear that unless we do something in the next six months or possibly in the next year, I would say six months rather than one year, we are, we are actually sleepwalking to war just as we had done in 1914. This is a... a, a yeah, a... A fairly uh, profound warning and a very somber note to, to, to leave the conversation on. But I, I have to tell you, Ambassador, this is one of the most interesting conversations I've, I think I've ever had on this podcast. It's really absolute pleasure to talk to you and to learn so much from you. Thank you very much, David. Globalization Cafe is a not-for-profit educational podcast series, but we do have a few overheads so we'd like to ask you for your support. If you enjoy the podcast series, please subscribe, rate and review and encourage others who might be interested to do the same. And if you're feeling particularly generous, 
head on over to our Patreon page accessible through globalizationcafe.com. Any donation, no matter what the size, would be gratefully received. I'm Dr. Philip Leach Snow. I edit and produce Globalization Cafe, and I'm looking forward to talking to you again in the next one.